Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Derek, and um, like Josh said, if this is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. You're catching us in the middle of a series on the life of the Apostle Paul. We're looking at the book of Acts, which really chronicles a lot of his life and, and travels. And um, we're up to Acts chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts 20. You'll also find the words up on the screen and in your bulletin. Um, and we're going to do something a little different today because there's a, quite a bit of traveling that goes on. So I want to put a map up on the screen, if we could put that map up there, and um, just so you can kind of see where all this stuff is happening. And that, that at least was helpful for me as I was studying this week. So um, last week we were in Acts chapter 19, and the setting was Ephesus, which is right there. And um, as a result of Paul and his team preaching the gospel in Ephesus, there was all kinds of stuff that got shaken up. And as a result, there was this massive riot that broke out. And that's what's referenced here as we begin to read verse 1, if we could show those verses. All right. So it says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Macedonia, you see right up here. Okay, so he's setting out from Ephesus and going to be heading out that way. If we go to the next verse. It says he traveled through that area, so he traveled all through here, encouraging, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, so he's going around just pumping up these churches, these leaders, and then it says that they finally arrived in Greece, which is down here, where he stayed for three months. We can go to the next verse. So at that point, it says, because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So Paul's original plan is he's down here and where he's actually trying to get to, he's trying to get to Syria, but he's specifically trying to get to Jerusalem. So he just wanted to, you know, take a voyage through here by ship and he wanted to come down here into Jerusalem. But he hears about this plot where they're trying to kill him, okay, because he's causing all sorts of trouble for, for, for the Jewish people. And so, um, so he decides he's going to have to backtrack. Now, this might seem like a, what's the big deal? No big deal, right? This was actually a really big deal because Paul is on a very tight time frame. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But let's go to verse 4. So in verse 4, it's saying all these people who are with Paul, and I'm not even going to try and butcher all these names and places and try and pronounce them, but here's why this is significant. Paul was traveling with a team of representatives church leaders from different churches that, that had been started. The reason he's traveling isn't expressly shown here in Acts 20, but you see in Paul's letters throughout the New Testament that he's written letters to these different churches, and what these guys are doing at this point is they're on a big fundraising campaign. They're going around and they're collecting money for the Christians back in Jerusalem. The reason they're collecting money is because the Christians in Jerusalem are very poor. So here's the deal. Here's why Paul's in a hurry. There's this festival. There were three major Jewish festivals during the year. One of them was the festival of Pentecost. And during these festivals, they were massive pilgrimages. And so people would come from all over the region, and they would descend on Jerusalem. Now, Paul's thinking, well, first of all, these Christians are really poor. And then what are they, what are they trying to do? right? They're, what they're trying to do, these Christians, is people will be coming in, and so they'd be hosting friends, they'd be hosting family members, and they would be trying to share the, the great news of Jesus Christ. 
And just practically speaking, does it not cost money to host people at your house? Yeah. So, so Paul's like, we got I gotta get there. I gotta help these guys. They're dirt poor, and they got a ton of people coming in. This is gonna be a major problem. Hospitality was a big deal to the early church. So Paul's going around with these guys, and they're they're raising money, and they're hoping to get to the church. And it says in verse 16, they're hoping to get there by the, the festival of the Pentecost. All right, let's go to the next verse. So it says that they travel and they go up around and they end up in a place called Troas. And um, that is actually the setting for verses 7 through 12. They're in Troas. And this, this is kind of cool because this is one of the um, first documentations of a church service that we see. And here's how it goes in verses 7 through 12. It says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That's a reference to communion. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. You ever been to a church service that went on too long? You might not have wanted to be here. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I wonder if that's a little jab that Luke makes. Some, you know, Luke was the writer of Acts. He was making a little jab at his, at his friend Paul there. I don't know. When Eutychus was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive! Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. This time that's a reference to having a big meal. They had a big feast, midnight feast. Then it says, check this out, after talking until daylight, he left. Now that is the church service right there. Unbelievable. All-nighter. It says, then the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So here in, in these verses, what we see is once again, over and over in, in the book of Acts, we see God's supernatural power on display. Once again, there's been this tremendous miracle that has happened. But what I want you to, to, to get is there's a really important point I don't want you to miss. And so I want you to write this down, okay? Because th this is the importance of these verses here. These verses show the danger of falling asleep during a sermon. Okay? Don't ever do that, okay? You can see this can be hazardous to your health, okay? Big, big, big problem here. And I got to tell you, I take my hat off to Paul. Because have you ever had somebody fall asleep when you were talking to them? Like in mid-sentence. Have you had some, raise your hand. You had someone literally just, just went out on you, like in the middle of a conversation. It's tremendously insulting, right? It's crazy, the audacity. How could someone do this? My wife, Becky, has a gift. She's blessed with that gift of just, she's, she can be out in 10 seconds. And so over and over, we've been married almost 10 years now, and I still, I just get duped almost every week. Last night, last night, no, it was actually Friday night. Friday night, this was great. She didn't just fall asleep on me when I was talking. She fell asleep on me in the middle of talking to me. That's amazing. But, you know, there's something about that that just, it's offensive. You know what I'm saying? Like, even 10 years, I'm still like, are you serious? Are you sleeping right now? She's... You know, she's out. 
just he doesn't care. And I'm thinking, you know, did Paul have a moment where he's like, you know what? I'm just going to leave him dead. Did, if he would have done that, do you realize that would have changed the course of, of church history forever? Because no one would ever fall asleep in church if that kid had died and hadn't come back, right? I mean, no one, no one could do it. It would be ridiculous. But instead, we see Paul had mercy on him. God had mercy, and um, he, was, he was brought back to life. So anyway, um, moving on from that little church experience, it says that um, from there, if we could show that map again, they went on to um, three more cities, to Assos, Mytilene, and Miletus. So they're continuing their voyage here, and they get down to Miletus, and obviously their, their ultimate goal is here in Jerusalem. And you've got to understand, it would take a long time to travel. They do, they do their, a lot of their traveling on foot, and they would be doing it on boats, and it would be dependent on the schedule of fishermen or, or you know, whatever boats were traveling around. And so even though they actually had seven weeks between the, the Passover uh, to, to ultimately the Pentecost, they were really, really pressed for time. These guys were on the move. Big, big time hurry. So much so that when they get to Miletus here, Paul actually says, you know, I really want to talk to the guys in Ephesus, the, the, the church, the leaders. I want to talk to them, but we don't have time to, 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 go, to go down that way. So he sends a messenger on ahead, and he summons the, the leaders from Ephesus to come and meet him in Miletus. Time is of utmost importance. He says, come on, guys, this is a 30-mile journey. 30 miles. Probably would have taken him 12 to 15 hours to travel that distance. And the leaders show up in Miletus, and that is where we see Paul give this unbelievable leadership talk to these guys. He wants to talk to them one more time. Even though he has been with them for the last three years, he's like, I, I have got to talk to these leaders one more time. And it, it's a great speech. We're going we're gonna to walk through it here in just a second. But there's two things that I want you to be thinking about to keep in mind as you listen to Paul's speech to them. The first one is you've got to remember that Paul was a living legend in the eyes of these leaders. Here's the guy, today still considered the greatest Christian to ever live. He was starting churches all over the region. He preached the gospel without fear. He risked his life time and time and time again. He was brilliant in his teaching and his theology. Uh, the guy was unbelievable. Think about if there's, if there's you know, somebody famous that you would just kill to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with. A rock star, a famous Hollywood celebrity, an athlete, a, a famous leader, world leader. Think about having a chance to, to interact with that person one-on-one. -on -one. You would hang on every word, wouldn't you, that they said to you? You would hang on every word. Well, that's what was going on with Paul and these leaders. I actually had an experience like that myself. When I was in Cincinnati, I was in college, and it was summer break, and I was delivering pizzas for Pizza Hut in Cincinnati. I'm a huge Cincinnati Bengals football fan, so you got to know that up front. And I got a delivery to the really nice part of town where sometimes you get a delivery to one of the Bengals, and I had never had the chance to do that. But um, I saw the last name was Jennings, and Stanford Jennings played for the Bengals. He scored the only touchdown in Super Bowl 23. I was just like, oh, no way. Could this, could this really be... Could this be Stanford Jennings? This would be unbelievable. And so I'm driving out to, you know, to maybe this is his house. I don't know. I'm getting really, really excited. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. You know, I'm a huge fan, and, and I get his autograph or, you know, whatever. So 
I ring the doorbell. Door opens, and sure enough, there's this, it's Stanford Jennings, just standing there, looking at me. And I look at him. And I have all this stuff that I want to say. And I'm holding the pizza. And I freeze. And he's just looking at me with that look like, are you going to give me my pizza? <laughs> and I just, he's like, how's it going? I said, good. And then I handed him the pizza. You know, I, I was just, I didn't know, I was frozen. I was, I was in awe. You know, this was Stanford Jennings in, in the flesh right here. And so I hand him the pizza and he's just kind of, you know, so how much, how much is it? And I, you know, I, I gave him, I, I told him how much it was. He gave me the money. And uh, he said, okay, thanks. You know, like, you can leave now, you know, essentially. And so then the door closed and I, I totally blew it. You know, um, so here, here's the thing. But I hung on every word he said. I mean, I can remember every word of that conversation like it was yesterday, right? This is what happens when you're in the presence of someone who's like a living legend in your eyes. Now, I, I, I totally messed up. I didn't, I didn't get, my, get, get it down, but I can still tell you every word that he said. I hung on every word that that man said, as much of a fool as I, as I feel from that conversation. So Paul was a living legend. They would have hung on every word. And here's the other thing. Paul is absolutely laser-focused on Jerusalem, okay? Time is of the essence. And so basically, and what you find as you'll hear through the speech that he gives to them, is that he knows this is the very last time that he's going to get to see these guys, that he's going to talk to them. And so he's, he's giving them just the essentials of leadership. He's telling them, listen, if you forget everything else, guys, don't forget this. Everything we've talked about in the last three years, but don't forget this. And so with those two things in mind, I want you guys to listen. And we're going to listen to a translation of Acts chapter 20 of this speech. It's called the message translation. And more than a word-for-word rendering, it's more like a sentence-for-sentence. I think it it just, it really gives um, a a lot into kind of what what the speech actually would have felt like if you were hearing it back then. This is just, it really flows. It's in modern language that that we can really hear. So um, you may not be totally familiar with this translation, but I think it's really good for for this purpose. So it starts in verse 18. Just just listen to this talk. One leader to a whole group of other leaders. It says, when they arrived, Paul said, you know that from day one of my arrival in Asia, I was with you totally, laying my life on the line, serving the master, that'd be a reference to Jesus, no matter what, putting up with no end of scheming by Jews who wanted to do me in. I didn't skimp or trim in any way. Every truth and encouragement that could have made a difference to you you got. I taught you out in public and I taught you in your homes, urging Jews and Greeks alike to a radical life change before God and an equally radical trust in our master, Jesus. So he's saying, guys, I put it all out there. You guys know, put it all out there. Uh, Some scholars speculate that that he's actually in this also responding to a lot of criticism, that he was under fire, that that critics were coming in and, and blasting his character. And so this is kind of also potentially a response that he's making to some of these things. He's saying, guys, come on, you know me. We spent time together. We did this. You know that I've laid it all on the line for you. And he says, but there's another urgency before me now. I feel compelled to go to Jerusalem. I'm completely in the dark about what will happen when I get there. I do know that it won't be any picnic, for the Holy Spirit has let me know repeatedly and clearly that there are hard times and imprisonment ahead. But that matters little. What matters most to me is to finish what God started. The job the master Jesus gave of letting, 
of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. And so this is goodbye. You're not going to see me again, nor I you. You whom I have gone among for so long, proclaiming the good news of God's inaugurated kingdom. I've done my best for you, given you my all, held back nothing of God's will for you. At this point, he turns, and now he sets his sights and his attention right on these leaders. And it's all about them. He says, listen, verse 28, he says, now it's up to you. Be on your toes, both for yourselves and your congregation of sheep. The Holy Spirit has put you in charge of these people. God's people, they are, to guard and protect them. God himself thought they were worth dying for. I know that as soon as I'm gone, vicious wolves are going to show up and rip into this flock. Men from your very own ranks, twisting words so as to seduce disciples into following them instead of Jesus. So stay awake and keep up your guard. Remember those three years I kept at it with you, never letting up, pouring my heart out with you, one after another. Now I'm turning you over to God, our marvelous God, whose gracious word can make you into what he wants you to be and give you everything you could possibly need in this community of holy friends. I feel like as Paul is, is, is saying this speech, you know, he's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's probably going to be the end of me. This is the last time we're going to talk. You know, he's pumping these guys up. I feel like there should be like some sort of like gladiator theme music going on or like Braveheart or something, you know, just kind of, I mean, he is just laying it out there. This is as intense as a leadership talk as you're going to find. And there's a ton of stuff in here. But I want to pull three things out that really spoke to me about what makes a great leader. The essence of great leadership. And there's, there's three things I want to talk about. And the first one is this. Feel free if you want to follow along. Great leaders recognize their influence. Great leaders recognize their influence. In verse 28... He says, the Holy Spirit has put you in charge of these people, leaders. So what he's trying to get these leaders from the church in Ephesus to see is that God has actually anointed them. Okay, this is a God-given opportunity, and God is the one who has put them in charge and given them this opportunity to lead. Now, many of us can completely relate to this, and as soon as we think about leadership, we instantly gravitate to the, the leadership positions that we hold. And some of us are in a formal position of leadership, right? You can think about what that looks like for you in your life. That's easy and obvious, but I want to probe a little deeper than the formal leadership that you have, because what I want to challenge everyone in this room to think about is that every single one of us in this room is a leader. Every single one of us, maybe not in every circle that we run in, but we are all given the gift of influence by God. It's a gift. And so what I want you to think about for just a minute is what are those circles that you run in, okay? Work, volunteering, church, family, friends, neighborhood. What are, think about the different circles that you run in. Which of those circles do you, can you kind of see, oh yeah, I, I actually have a, a, a pretty strong amount of influence in those certain circles. 
I may not be a formal declared leader or, you know, in some sort of leadership position, but as I sit and think about it, yeah, I do notice that, like, people come up to me and they, they ask for my opinion, they seek me out on certain things. I notice that as I'm talking, people are paying attention and they're listening. People remember things that I've told them at certain points along the way, okay? This is, this is the kind of stuff that I want you to focus on for a minute because God gives us influence. It's a gift. And what great leaders do is they don't necessarily have to worry about being in a formal position of leadership. Great leaders just recognize that they have been given a gift of influence in a certain circle, and what they do is they leverage that influence. So here's the question for you. As you think about those different circles that you run in, where do you have influence? Where has God given you influence? Don't just think of the obvious leadership stuff. But where has God given you influence in certain circles? And then the follow-on question to that is then, what are you doing with that influence? Are you leveraging that influence? Not for your own gain, but are you leveraging it for good? Are you leveraging it for God? I want you to think about that one for a little bit. Great leaders recognize their influence and they leverage it for good and for God. Second thing, great leaders are always ready to engage. Always ready to engage. Paul tells these leaders again in verse 20, he says, be on your toes. Okay, for those of you who grew up playing any sort of a sport or you were into any sort of, you know, anything requiring some athletics, you know what being on your toes is all about, right? right? If you're standing back on your heels, you're not ready. Okay, you got to be up, you got to be ready, you got to be on your toes. That means you're ready for whatever is about to come at you. Okay, you are ready to engage. I remember hearing a leadership talk uh, a few years ago, and uh, the guy who was giving the talk gave this, this leadership uh, principle, and it was fantastic, I thought. And, it, it, and the way it went, it's, it's a little weird, but it's, it's very memorable. He said, if something feels funky, engage. <laughs> If something feels funky, engage. That's what great leaders do. They're on their toes and they're ready to engage whatever that thing is. You see, we have this tendency when something feels funky to kind of want to sit back and hope that that situation will resolve on its own. And what you find, if you, you, you can play this back okay, through situations and circumstances in your life, but most of the time when something feels funky and you get a sense that it's funky, it's just not going away. Okay? Someone has to engage that thing. And that's what great leaders do. They're courageous and they engage whatever that thing is that feels funky. Um, Starting this coming Sunday, a week from today, we're going to be starting sign-ups for our spring community group session. It's it's a 10-week session, so we'll be doing sign-ups for for new groups to form. And uh, basically, these community groups are where we have like 7 to 12 people who come together and they uh, study the Bible we put these little Bible study things together. You've probably seen them in, in your bulletin from time to time um, to talk about the sermon, to talk about kind of how, how does the Bible meet real life. Let's unpack that. Let's talk about how that's relevant for us. And we share what's going on, you know, and, and, and pray for one another. And that's what happens in community groups. We have tons of community groups at Grace. And so there's, there's tons and tons of leaders. And so we do these trainings all the time. And this is one of my favorite things to, to talk to our leaders about because I think it's actually one of the most important things. And if you've never 
been in a group, if you've never done a Bible study, you've never done a small group, community group, whatever you call it, um, you have to know that at Grace, we, uh, every single one of our group leaders goes through a training where we just hammer on this principle of if something feels funky as a group leader, you have to engage it, okay? So if the group's going along and you got some loose cannon who just starts and, and that, that, that person has some hidden agenda that they're trying to convince everybody else in the group that they need to believe or they need to understand or whatever, that group leader has to engage that person, okay? You, you've got, to, you've got to, to, to deal with that person. Otherwise, it creates a really uncomfortable situation in that group and it's going to drive people out. It's not going to be a good environment. We tell group leaders, look, if you've got someone, and I know there's no one like you in this room, none of you guys are like this, but um, someone who just, just talks on and on and on and on and on in a, in a community group, I'm sure you've never, never experienced anything like that where someone just, man, they're just rolling. They just can't be quiet. Say, look, as a leader, you, you have got to find a way to rein that person in. You, you have to. Otherwise, your group is going it'll to, be, it'll be done. Fast forward a few weeks, you won't have a group anymore. You'll have one person, you and that one person, you'll come and it'll be great. They won't even notice the other people weren't there. It'd be fantastic. So whatever the case may be, and, and one of the biggest ones is if someone comes in and there's a, there's, a, there's a hint of judgmentalism, you know, a hint of like someone coming in and, and kind of just there's judgment and condemnation being leveled, that leader has to immediately engage that situation. We talk about, look, that's what you're called to do. You, you are the leader. It's not appropriate for the other person who's sitting there to, to jump in and, and, and say something. But as a leader, you have to be on your toes. You've got to be ready to engage. That's what great leaders do. And see, what's so cool is when our leaders grasp this and they understand that that's actually what I'm called to do as the leader of the group, the community group at Grace, then it creates this incredible environment where then people can be free to share and put stuff out there and say, yeah, I don't have all the answers and I'm struggling with this thing or whatever the case may be. And it creates this, this awesome environment. But the way that that environment is created is because those leaders are always on their toes. You know what I'm saying? Always ready to engage. If anything goes right, if anything starts to get funky in there, that leader has to show, no, this, this is a place where we can have great conversations, where we can do this stuff, and we're going to make sure that, that everything's on the up and up. So um, you've got to do that. As, as, that's a great leadership quality. Always be ready to engage. Now, <clears throat> there are some of you who are here, and I'm not talking about community groups anymore for a minute, but I'm just talking about some of you, when you're thinking about some of the circles of influence that you run in. This may be a family situation, maybe a friend situation, or whatever. Something at work, whatever. But for some of you, in, in that circle of influence that you have, there's something funky that's going on. There's some sort of an issue. There's a problem. There may be a rift between two family members. There may be a misunderstanding between coworkers. There, there's some bad blood or bad feelings. Something's going on. You know. You can feel it. You just know that something's not right. And what I want to encourage you to do is in that circle, if that's a circle where you know that you have a gift of influence, I'm telling you, great leaders engage that. If something's feeling funky, I, I got to encourage you. You got to go and engage it. Don't, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Go and engage it. you got to do it. Let me give you the last one. Great leaders serve. Great leaders serve. In verse 28, um, and I'm switching back to the New International Version translation here, uh, but Paul says, he tells these leaders, he says, be shepherds 
of the church of God. Now, Paul uses this term shepherds. He also refers to the Ephesian church as sheep. He says, like, shepherd the sheep here. You know, these are, these are sheep. You've got to shepherd. You have to understand that this was no accidental term. This was a completely loaded word. When he said, be shepherds, everyone would have known instantly what that meant. They would have understood the significance and the context because we're talking 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and shepherding was a common vocation, okay? So you probably had friends or family members who were shepherds, or at least you knew what that was all about. Shepherding was not like a nine-to-five cushy job, okay? First of all, shepherding was a very lowly profession. It was a very humble profession. It was also a really difficult and hard profession. It was kind of one of those all-in kind of jobs. Because here's the thing about sheep. Sheep are not self-sufficient animals. Anybody got a pet sheep in the room? Okay, nobody. You got to take my word for it, okay? Sheep, they, they, they wander around. They can't find their way. They get stuck. They can't get themselves out. They have no clue. They, they, they Sometimes the shepherd can be right there, and they still don't really recognize. They have to hear the shepherd's voice. I mean, shepherd are, or sheep are completely dependent on the shepherd. So as the shepherd, you are constantly serving the sheep. You follow me? Now, here's the thing. At the end of the day, you, shepherd didn't just, didn't just throw in the towel and that was it, we'll see you in the morning, sheep. No, 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 no. What the shepherd would do, when they're outside of the city, the shepherd would actually have to wrangle all the sheep and get them into some sort of like a pen or a sheepfold. And then the only little entranceway would be um, there would just be this one little spot. And what the shepherd would do is the shepherd would actually sleep in that entranceway. The shepherd was the one who was there to serve and to protect, to ensure the safety of the sheep. And it was actually so much so that the, 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 the shepherd's comfort and sleep were secondary to the safety of the sheep that the shepherd was serving. And so when Paul says this, when he says, be shepherds of the church of God, what, what is just in that, that they would have just instinctively known and heard is that you have got to sacrificially serve your people. This is what great leaders do. This is not something that was Paul's original thought or idea. Uh, this is something actually that uh, you know, God talks about actually in the Old Testament and then Jesus talks about in the New Testament in, in the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus actually says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. He's making reference to ultimately that Jesus would die on a cross for forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus laying down his life for the sheep. And so again, you see the, the sacrificial service that's, that's in there when we talk about being a shepherd. What I got to tell you guys is that Jesus radically redefined what leadership looked like, and what greatness looked like. In Matthew 20, 28, he says this. He says, the Son of Man, and i got to stop there for a second. Um, he's saying the Son of Man, he's actually referring to himself. So if you ever think that like a famous celebrity or an athlete like Terrell Owens or somebody, you know, and they're referring to themselves in the third person, like T.O. is going to go do this, or you, ever, you hear when people do that, that's pretty cool, whatever. Jesus is actually the first one to do that. Just clearing that up. He wanted me to give him props. Um, so Jesus, speaking of himself in the third person, pretty cool. Um, he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. 
See, what Jesus is saying there, you, you got you to get that. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying that true greatness is not how many people are willing to serve you, but true greatness is measured by how many people you're serving. It's by serving others. That's the stuff of great leaders. Great leaders aren't looking to be served. Great leaders are looking to serve those they lead. This is a radical, upside-down concept, but it's actually brilliant. And here's why. If you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? See, when, when, someone, when, a, when a leader comes and they serve you, they come and say, what do you need? How can I help you? When they do everything in their power to make your life a little bit better, when they come alongside you and they serve you, what's your natural response? You're grateful, right? You really appreciate it. But a lot of times what happens is you will somehow want to reciprocate that. You're like, man, that was so cool. I'd be willing to follow this person now. This, next time this person asks me to do something, sure, I'm going to do it. I'll do it willingly because this person, they, man, they, were, they went to bat for me. Look what they did for me. There's this element of what happens is when we serve others, there's this natural response oftentimes, not always, okay? But um, especially not in people who struggle with dysfunction, okay? But uh, a lot of times when we serve somebody, their natural response is to want to serve back. So when you think about your formal leadership role, and you think about your informal leadership role, places where you have influence in your circles that you run in, here's the question for you. How are you serving those you lead? How are you serving them? Now, I have to say one more thing about this whole serving deal because there are some of you I know, and you're thinking, and that's all I do is serve these people. Um, I'm sick and tired of serving. I mean, I'm just totally burned out. I serve all the time, and I've got those people you were talking about, those dysfunctional people who I serve them, and they're just like, oh, sweet, thanks. There's, there's no reciprocity. There's no trying to serve back. I just give and give and give, and they just take and take and take. I'm sick and tired of serving. I'm not going to serve anymore. Maybe that's where you are right now. You're sick and tired of serving other people. You're burned out. And if that's where you are, I want to share something that Paul says in the beginning of his talk that might help you to see your service in a different sort of a way. In verses 18 and 19, so as Paul's starting out his talk, he's talking to these leaders who he's clearly served for the past three years. Look at what he says. He says, I was with you totally, laying my life on the line. So what he's saying there is, like, I was there for you guys. I was serving, right? I was all in with you guys. But check out these next few words. Laying my life on the line, serving who? The master. Again, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Serving Jesus Christ no matter what. Did you catch that? While Paul was serving these church leaders in Ephesus, ultimately, he wasn't serving them. Ultimately, he was serving Jesus Christ. It's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different realm when you see it that way. Because then you're not dependent on somebody coming up to you and saying, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate when you did that for me. I, you know, I was so such a sacrifice, and now I'm going to try harder. Or, you know, or, I mean, you're not dependent on them to give you strokes. You know what I'm saying? Because you're not ultimately serving for them. 
You're, you're serving God. You're serving God by serving them. That's how this thing works. And when you can get your mind around this idea that ultimately you're serving God, it can take out a lot of bitterness and a lot of frustration and a lot of resentment. Because ultimately you're not doing it for those. It's not about their response necessarily. All right, well, here's my final thought and then I'm going to have the music team just come up in just a second. But what's so cool to me about this stuff that we see, these leadership principles, is that these weren't just things that Paul said to a group of people. And they weren't just things that Jesus taught that we see recorded in the Bible. They're not mere words on a page. This is where it's so cool to me. Is because Jesus didn't just say this stuff. Paul didn't just say this. This was actually lived out. God has actually done this. Look at Romans 5.8. It says, but God, notice this word, demonstrates. God demonstrates his own love. Didn't just tell us about it. Didn't just talking about this stuff. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what, what this passage is saying to us is that God, by his very nature, is the one who serves. That's what Jesus came to radically redefine and clarify for the Jewish people who had kind of come to a little bit of a misunderstanding of this whole thing. Jesus saying, look, this is what it's all about. You follow a God who actually has a heart of a servant, wants to serve, and God is the one that starts this whole thing in motion. When we talk about serving God, we actually don't do it. We're serving other people, right? We're serving God by serving others. But actually the one who initiates this whole process is actually God. God's the one who served us first. That's why it says, while we were still sinners. So essentially what it's meaning is, before we had done anything, before we had done anything at all, God says, you know what? I'm going to come down to this planet and I'm going to demonstrate my love for you. I'm going to give you the ultimate expression of my love. I'm going to walk this planet and I'm going to show you what true love really is. And I'm going to die on a cross for you so that there would never be a doubt in your life that you are loved unconditionally all the days of your life, that your sins are forgiven all through Jesus Christ. God says, I'm initiating that whole thing. Here's the cool thing. And, and this is, you know, we, sometimes we lose sight of this, you guys. Oftentimes we think that religion, you know, it, it's kind of born out of guilt or obligation. It's stuff that we really should do. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's what drives us. I really should do this because that's what, you know, you just kind of have this guilty conscience or whatever. That's, that's not it at all. Guilt should never be the driving force for why you do anything for God. It should always be not a motive of guilt, but a motive of love. It's just responding to what God has already done for us. He's created us. He's given us this life. He's blessed us all in so many different ways. And then ultimately, he's redeemed us by coming to this earth and dying on a cross for us. So ultimately, our service, whatever we do in this world, it's, it's, just, it's just responding to what God has already done for us. That's, that's the whole deal. The reason we serve God is because God first served us. All we're doing is responding, as it said in verse 24, to the incredibly extravagant generosity of God. Would you pray with me? God, um, 
we thank you that we can come together in this place and um, study your word and that there's always something that we can take away from it that uh, helps us in our lives. God, help us all in this room to see where you have given us the gift of influence and leadership. God, help us to, to, um, to utilize that in a way that honors you, to utilize it for good. God, um, I pray that you would help us as leaders to always be ready to engage whenever something just doesn't feel right, something is not of you, God, that, w- that we can be courageous enough to jump in there as leaders and, and to do something about it rather than just let mayhem just have its, have its course. And God, ultimately, um, man, I know we can hear this principle of great leaders serve and you came to serve and we're supposed to serve and we can hear this. But I know, at least for me, God, my mind kind of always goes back to, you know, greatness is still about people serving me. And um, Lord, help us all to really just embody that servant uh, heart that you have, God. Help us to serve those around us and to remember that that's actually how we serve you. We thank you, God, that we don't do this out of guilt or obligation, but ultimately we do this because you have first served us. You have first loved us. We're just responding, freely responding to your love. Uh, Just help us to have that right spirit, not with bitterness, not with resentment toward you or anybody else, but just freely, just walking out that, that just sense of gratitude and love that we have. And um, we just thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen.